Well, the Bible reading today is from the book of Matthew, which is the first book of the New Testament. And if you've got a church Bible, it's on page 820, it's chapter 15. So chapter 15 and the first 28 verses. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. He answered them, And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, Honour your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his mother, father or his mother, what you, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honour his father and his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honours me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they do worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. Then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? He answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone, they are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. But Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. And he said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon, and behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith, be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Who were these Pharisees in verse 1 here, and, and what were they about? Uh, and what about the scribes there, verse 1? The, the Pharisees and scribes then came to Jesus from Jerusalem. Pharisees were a particular sect within Judaism at that time, a sect that advocated a very strict way of life, carefully following all kinds of rules and customs so as to be more holy, they would probably say, which sounds very impressive and very honourable indeed. The problem, though, is that they weren't really basing all of that on the word of God. They had slowly developed this whole way of life, a hyper-religious way of life it was, but they had made it all about their own ideas. Uh, and that's what Jesus pulls out here and goes after in Matthew 15. 
Uh, the scribes were those uh, trained in written documentation in that culture, in, including you know, things like hand-copying uh, the scriptures. And, and it seems that, by and large, they, they might have actually been a subgroup of the Pharisees uh, because uh, they seem to get mentioned uh, all, uh, together all the time in scripture. Uh, so, so maybe what's meant here, actually, in verse 1 is you know, that, that Pharisees, including some trained in the transmission of the law, came to see Jesus. Uh, in Matthew chapter 23, uh, later on, Jesus says that the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. In other words, they functioned as elders in the religious life of the nation at this point in time, both, both by their cultural sort of sway. You know, I mean, if everyone's looking up to them as, as being super religious and everything, then people are instinctively going to you know, listen to whatever the Pharisees and scribes have to say, aren't they? Uh, but also, more specifically than that, in that many of the 70 formal elders of the of the nation uh, in that day, seventy elders on the, on the ruling Sanhedrin council uh, of that day. Many of those guys were Pharisees and scribes. Uh, the rest were Sadducees, and and we'll hit them a bit later if we keep on in Matthew uh, the way we are. But that's the scene as we break into chapter fifteen here. Pharisees and scribes have come from Jerusalem to see Jesus, who is up in Galilee. Uh, if you remember last week, and, and they've come out of a concern that Jesus' disciples are breaking the tradition of the elders, verse 2. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Which, if you think about all that background that we just worked through, is, is really another way of saying, Jesus, why do your disciples break the tradition of us scribes and Pharisees? What Jesus' disciples were doing, you see, was, was a direct challenge to their authority in terms of the Sanhedrin, for one, uh, but also just their general sort of cultural sway, these guys. Uh, the problem with these guys uh, becomes clear if we push on in the rest of verse 2 there. Uh, what's this crime that they're on about here? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. Uh, this was obviously a matter of some importance to these Pharisees and scribes to have come all this way. And to be very clear about this, it, it was one of the many traditions of the elders in that day. But it isn't a commandment of God. To wash your hands before eating was not a commandment given us by God. You see, what the Pharisees had done over many, many years is, is build up a whole new set of laws over and above what the word of God in Scripture does say, with very good intentions at first uh, to create a fence around the law of God is what they did say, you know, to make sure people don't accidentally violate one of God's sacred laws. Uh, they would create finer little laws all around the edge, you know, even more restrictive, so that, you know, people are going to trigger one of those little laws before they trigger uh, what God had said. And that seems very wise. It does. But over time, it got out of hand. They had no end of these little laws, and everything had slowly become about all these little laws. Life was about the fence now instead of the law of God that it was supposed to protect and maintain. By Jesus' day, their whole way of thinking, their whole way of life was a totally lost cause. 
They're enforcing their own laws so hard. Now, listen to Jesus here. They're actually hindering people from following the law of God. And yet, and yet, here's the thing. To the people on the street, the Pharisees and scribes seem more religious, more devout and and godly than, than anyone else. But all the while, they're actually hindering people from God's word. Jesus gets in and clarifies that here without pause. I was struck this week by how blunt his words are all through chapter 15. And, and I think it's because when, when it comes to, to deceit and hypocrisy on, on these things, he wants us to see. And so he calls these men out point blank. He answered them, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? Jesus more or less strips these men with those words, strips them of their presumed role as elders of the religion of the day, charging them with breaking the commandment of God. And he goes on with a case example of his own here. Uh, For God commanded, honour your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say... If anyone tells his father or mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, then he need not honour his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. For the sake of your tradition, you have nullified the word of God. They are showing a great religiosity for everyone to see, but they do not have in them any true devotion to God. That's the thing about these people Jesus is calling out here. To society's eyes, they epitomise good, religious, upright life. But truth is, they've put their own word above God's word. They're actually trying to uphold their own authority in the eyes of the people and, of course, over the people as well. So it can be hard to spot this kind of thing if you think about all that because there's a pretense to to this, pretense to some people on the whole matter of faith and, and all the matters of God. But Jesus can see right through it. He can see right through it and he cuts right through it as he goes on in verse 7. You hypocrites. Such blunt language from Jesus here. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honours me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. God had seen through the hearts of these men long ago. And through the hearts of all men, I think we might be safe to assume. And so Jesus uses all this here to then then set out some true guidance for the sake of these people. That true faith is, is about dealing with what's in our hearts, as he goes on in verse 10. He called the people to him and he said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, But what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. 
He unpacks it even further. If, if you drop down to verse 15, he unpacks it for his disciples. Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And he said, are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands doesn't defile anyone. Jesus doesn't want to get in and change our stomach. He wants to get in and change our heart, our sinful heart. Food and, and, and drink and, and whatever gets carried in with them with unwashed hands, that doesn't get into our hearts and lead us far, far from God. It's the things already in our heart that lead us away from God. Food goes into the stomach, Jesus says here, and then passes right on through. Literally here, Jesus says, it gets expelled into the latrine. It doesn't stop on its way through and, and, and blacken our heart. And it's the heart that God is concerned with. But the Pharisees and scribes are out of tune with what God is concerned with. The disciples came and said to him, verse 12, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Do you think? Of course Jesus knew, by the way, that they were offended. He just declared where their hearts were on all this, far from God. How do, how do you think he thinks this would have gone down? I don't think it's news to Jesus that they would have taken offence to what he says here. But he elaborates even further on these men. Not only did Isaiah prophesy accurately about them being far from God in their hearts, but, but that that was because they did not belong to God. Verse 13, he answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Not everybody belongs to God. That hard truth from Jesus in verse 13 comes even harder in light of all the other things around this because some people, for all the money in the world, some people seem like they do and they must belong to God because of the way they are so holy, so righteous, so over and above as they go about all things in their way. Isn't that something to try to process and take in as we sit here today? Surely these religious elites would, would think that they do belong to God. More, uh, they probably think that other people don't belong to God because the other people don't do the kind of super religious things that they do. Jesus is bringing great clarity on this in this scripture because looks and acts can be deceiving. On this, And Jesus doesn't want anyone to be deceived. He tells his disciples very plainly here, not everybody belongs to God, no matter how much it might seem. He's saying all this to, to his disciples, to his people, uh, so that they won't be led astray by those who, who just seem so holier than thou. Let them alone. They are blind guides. 
And if the blinds lead the blinds, both will fall into a pit. Why is Peter still without understanding in verse 15 and 16? Maybe because he's been sitting under blind guides all his life. Grown up in a society that's led by cultural religion, you know, that just pushes the trappings of men all the time rather than uh, speaking the word of God. And it can be hard. It can be very hard. And it can take time for our hearts to, to start to hear God's word when we've been so, so thoroughly conditioned to the teachings of men. Some of us sitting here today know what it's like to come out of that hardline religiosity, you know, where, where faith is about going through all the right motions, always being seen to be doing the right things and ticking all the right little religious boxes. It's hard to come free from all that. It takes time. And yet Jesus puts it all very crisply here for us to help us with that. Abandon them, he says quite literally in verse 14. Cut yourself free from it. Not free unto your own way of thinking, we might imagine Jesus would say. I mean, I mean, wasn't that the problem to begin with here, that the Pharisees and scribes had run off into their own way of thinking and doing everything? No, by free uh, and abandoning these people, I think Jesus would have it, have it so that our hearts would start to line up with what he does say. In this here, his word. And so too, therefore, I think, free to follow those faithful guides in life who, who will lead us into God's word. We ought to be careful not to misread here and think that Jesus is just dispensing and doing away with elders and guides altogether. No, he's wanting us to be free from unfaithful shepherds who would lead us astray. It's Ezekiel 34 in action here in Matthew 15, if you know that old prophecy. Later, of course, faithful elders are appointed in Jesus' church. You know, those who are going to guide his people faithfully to him, under his word. It's the hypocrisy of these guys in Jesus' day that he's rebuking here, not their role or not the role of elder. Uh, so don't abandon the idea of elders, I think we should probably say. That would obviously go against other things that the scriptures here do say, what God has given us in his word. Free your heart from false shepherds, blind guides, is what this teaching does say. Because if their hearts are far, far from God, then how can they but lead you astray? I wonder what his disciples are making about all this. Jesus went away from there, verse 21, and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Why would Jesus withdraw? Why would Jesus go to the district of Tyre and Sidon, a Gentile region outside Israel, a region known for its godlessness? And the timing too, I'm, I'm curious about here. I mean, he's been in that area of the northwestern shoreline around the Sea of Galilee, if you remember where we were last week, a region where previously he had pronounced woes on the people of Israel there who would not repent. Uh, flashback uh, for you from, from when we were way back in chapter 11. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done. 
cities in Israel, that is, around the Sea of Galilee, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, Gentile cities, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Why does Jesus now go to this pagan area of Tyre and Sidon? And why, after calling out the false leaders of Israel about the state of their hearts before God? Coincidence, maybe. But I wonder if he's not setting up one more scene, setting up a contrast here to sort of round out this call so, so that we can better calibrate our hearts on where we should be. Should we look up to the Pharisees and scribes in this world, so impressive in their works they always do seem? Should we look down on, on people like this common woman now who, who simply comes and calls Jesus her Lord? Behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. Son of David is a messianic title. It proclaims the Christ. This woman knows who Jesus is. And she takes Jesus for who he is. O Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. On me. Jesus doesn't answer her word though, verse 23. At first at least. Is he disinterested in the people of Tyre and Sidon after all? Or maybe is he being patient and setting up for something more here? The disciples anyway, verse 23, they want her gone. The disciples came and begged him saying, send her away for she is crying out after us. He answered and answered who, I think we might ask as we try to take in those words. Jesus first has something more to say, it seems, to the disciples. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. An interesting comment here in, this, in, the, in the picture of what's going on. He comments on the lostness of Israel, the historic people of God, who've actually been following blind guides all this time into the teachings of men and, and are in grave danger of falling into a pit. That's where there's so many lost sheep, as if Jesus is saying, in Israel. As for this Canaanite woman, well, well, again, she calls Jesus her Lord, verse 25. Did you catch that? This, with more determination this time, she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, please help me. And Jesus again extends what he, what he seems to want to say in all of this. This time, at last, to the woman, it seems, he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. 
There is an urgency for the children of Israel. There is a priority for Israel to receive what he has come to bring. Which again should bring sharp clarity to the people of Israel in what he says here. They are children who who are still in need of proper food because they've been starved of the word of God by their, their false shepherds. Indeed, in Mark's account of this here, it is explained quite more explicitly in that exact way, a matter of priority. Mark chapter 7, Jesus said to this woman, let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Priority for Israel indeed, and priority for Israel there may well be, but nevertheless, Jesus keeps wandering into Gentile territory. Have you noticed in this gospel? He keeps going there with his gospel of grace. And we might point out while we're here that that this word dogs here is is speaking quite endearingly, actually, of, of household dogs, beloved pets, we might even say. It's a metaphor of priority in the gospel call, not rejection at all in any way. And sure enough, that's exactly what unfolds in what I think Jesus might have deliberately set up here because, again, this woman calls Jesus her Lord as the story goes on. She said, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And now I think Jesus rounds out this teaching, not just this beautiful, sweet teaching for her, but the wider teaching he's bringing to to all his disciples, to all his lost sheep, even of Israel as well. This is what God is looking for, a heart that just falls down in reverent trust of the Lord. Then he said to her, O woman, Great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. She knows where she stands in all these things. She can even agree with Jesus. Yes, Lord, I know. I know I ought to be the last of all to receive, if at all. But nevertheless... She trumps that fact with her trust in the Lord. His mercy, his grace, his riches, his generosity is what she has chosen to believe. I don't know if these two things are supposed to go together, but let's try to boil all this down here in Matthew 15. Hypocrisy in religion is often very hard to see simply because of what it is. It's one thing masquerading as something else. So so how can we know, I guess we should ask, how can we know that we're not following blind guides in our life, guides that will only lead us into a big black pit? Well, the test Jesus gives us here is clear. These hypocrites, he calls out, are teaching their own ideas instead of the word of God. He's so blunt with these blind guides, 
I think, so that we can have better eyes to see. Our teachers in life, our guides, our elders should teach us the wisdom of God for our lives and God has given us that wisdom in his word. So the measure actually should have always been clear, even back then. Culture, you see, society and and customs and, and, and that sort of stuff, it's so pervasive that it just slowly takes our eyes off the word of God until we suddenly no longer can see. The prevention for that is the same as its cure. Ground everything in the word of God. That's why the Bible is so central in reformed churches like the church we're sitting in today. Fundamental to reformed Christianity is that it upholds the supreme authority of the word of God in all matters of faith and conduct. Other Christian churches might lean on other things as their supreme authority that guides what they do, like tradition, which is what's happening here in Matthew 15. Some would lean more on feelings or reason, uh, but Reformed churches, which is what this Presbyterian church is, Reformed churches lean upon the word of God in Scripture as the complete authority over everything they do because that's what Scripture does say to do. Scripture itself in places just like this in Matthew 15, it teaches us that it is right that we should live our lives that way to let God's word trump all of what we think, all of our traditions, all of our thoughts and matters about life and faith. If there should be any conflict, God's word must prevail. And so as a reformed pastor, I must say this today as every day, if I should ever let go of the word of God and start pushing my own ideas in this church, cut me loose. Abandon me, as Jesus does say here. Abandon me. And the why of that should be easy enough to see. Because my thinking, my tradition, my reason, my feelings might all be useful and informative and good sometimes even, but ultimately they all come from me. And I'm sorry to say it as often as I say it, but I am sinful And so therefore you cannot trust what comes from me. And so too, by the way, are you. And your traditions and reason and feelings are all likewise susceptible to leading us astray. But the Bible, friends, comes to us from God. And he is righteous. And we can trust what he does say. So we must let what he says trump our human ideas when they need to be trumped. How else could we expect to, to, to be the people of God? How else will we be brought into relationship with God, to grow in true faith under God and enjoy God in the kingdom of God, will without end, only by surrendering ourselves to what he does say.
a case example might be helpful for us to try to think through what this might look like in, in reality. And the example Jesus works through here is actually pretty good for us to still work through today as we try to figure out his principle and how it applies. Not so much the, the washing of hands before eating thing that the Pharisees threw up, but, but the wider point that Jesus extends them into here, that nothing going into our mouths makes us unclean. It's a good case example to work through. Mark adds that when Jesus said that there in verse 17, that that nothing going into our mouths uh, just uh, does anything to make us unclean, Mark adds that by Jesus saying that there, he declared all foods clean now. So how is it then that there are still many, many people and churches today under the name of Jesus forbidding others what Jesus has declared clean. Gluttony is a sin, make no mistake. Drunkenness is a sin, have no doubt. Not feeding the poor among us is also a sin we should be quick to point out. But but wine, pork, meat in general, or any such things as these, Jesus has declared all foods clean. Those are things that go into our mouth, they pass through our belly and they get expelled into the latrine. They do not stop and make us somehow spiritually unclean. But there are churches today who impose those kind of laws or subtly shame those who partake in such things. And yet, if you think about all this, then then to enforce food and drink laws on others in that kind of way, as if it was some matter of true religion, then that would be to do the same sort of thing the Pharisees and scribes are doing right here in Matthew 15. And Jesus just gave his decree. They are blind guides. Let them be. They are leading the people not into the commandments of God, but into the tradition and teaching of men. And there's many, many other ways beyond that simple example, of course. And it's awfully deceptive, as I say, because oftentimes those who push human tradition come across as though they are closer to God than you or I. And they might think that they are closer to God than you or I. And they might carry on as if other people like you and I aren't close to God. We need to be watching, friends, and we need to be wary. And of course, I should say, we need to be watching and and wary of our own hearts too as to what Jesus is drawing out here and trying to say. Some people are very, very comfortable in religiosity, if I can call it that. You know, they've been, they've been following all the cultural rules around church all their life. They, they always tick the right boxes. They know all the right gestures, all the right signs. They go through the motions day after day after day. But have they come into the heart of simple faith like this Canaanite woman? Nothing to bring to the table. She just sits at the feet of God and lives with her trust in him. Have they come to this kind of faith is the question that we should be asking. And as I say, even of of our own hearts. To to trust in the the power of his commands and and by way of a direct and, and personal appeal to him. What an example this woman is. 
Can't imagine how many boxes she might have thought or or felt had to be ticked to to deliver her daughter from this stuff. Or or maybe she'd been told that she needed to tick to, to free her daughter from this awful, awful state. But her daughter was healed here instantly. And why or, or how? But because this woman just had faith in the Lord Jesus. She simply came and knelt in humble appeal before God. This was her religion in verse 22. Have mercy on me, O Lord. This was her religion, verse 25. Help me, Lord. This was her religion, verse 26. Yes, Lord, I know, I know, I know, I know. I know I'm not worthy to receive. But you, Lord, it's as if she does say, you, Lord, are so much richer, so much more generous, so much more gracious in your power and your wisdom and your grace than than all of your people put together could ever possibly conceive. So beautifully, I reckon, this lady shows us what Isaiah had prophesied about Jesus, as we saw way back in chapter 12, Matthew 12, 21. In his name, the Gentiles will hope. She's got it, I'd say. Jesus, I believe, would have us come back to what does matter as we try to put all this together today. Not impressive religiosity, but the simple heart of faith, the heart that that just wants to come to him and and sit under him and have him as our Lord, the heart that eventually, if you think about it, therefore is going to want to empty itself of all that stuff that, that tends to come out of our heart. The things that by nature are in there and and want to get out. It's a heart that's going to want to turn from that, isn't it? Turn and follow Jesus and actually have him as our Lord. Listen to what he does say. He's our true shepherd. He's our true guide and a a good heart of faith, a true heart of faith that's going to want to just come to him. and it's It's going to look like a simple, humble, kneeling before Jesus heart of faith. That's what it's going to look like. And maybe I can pray for us then on that kind of score. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your scripture always and we thank you for this one we've just read today. We pray it help us to go and process this hard. And as we do, we pray you please help us, Father. Help us to avoid religion for religion's sake. Help us uh, too not to be led astray by those doing religion for religion's sake. Help us in our faith, Lord, in our walk of faith. Help us to uphold your word and and seek out your truth in everything that we do and say. Teach us to sit under your word. Teach us to sit humbly at your feet. And therein, please bless us this day and forevermore too. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.